Our text for today is Psalm 89, verses 38 through 52. Psalm 89, 38 through 52. Here's the word of God. But now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword. And you've not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame Selah. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Father, thank you for your word. Don't let us miss what you're saying. Don't let us miss the heart, the emotion, the reality of this word, even as we praise you the faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Draw us to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When the wise men brought gifts to the child Jesus, they brought gifts that were perfectly appropriate. Gold is the right gift to bring somebody who's a king. Frankincense is a perfume used in the worship of God. It was the right gift to give the one who is God with us. And myrrh was a perfume that could be used in the preparation of a body for burial. Whether the wise men knew it or not, they brought a perfect gift to remind us that the child they bowed to in worship would lay down his life as a sacrifice to save God's people from their sins. This morning we read what rightly has a dark feeling. How many of you thought, that doesn't sound Christmassy to me? It's a feeling of desperation. We read the words of the ending section of Psalm 89. Over the past two weeks, we've seen how this psalm points us to the same aspects of Jesus as did the gifts of the wise men. Verses 1 through 18, as with the frankincense, we saw God praised. And we took time to remember that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. 
In verses 19 through 37, as with the gold, we saw God's promise of a king and throne. And there we remember that Jesus is the king of kings and he will reign on David's throne over the world forever. Well, now this morning, as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of the Savior's birth, we look to this psalm one more time and we're going to find three points for you point writers And we will see in it deeply emotional, deeply painful words of pleading with God. The psalmist cries out to God, deliver us. And we will remember how Jesus is in fact God with us, King of Kings and our deliverer. Y'all, I just want you to know, I love studying psalms. And one reason I do is for their reality. The Psalms cover every human emotion. They speak about real life and real faith in a way that is unvarnished. When you read the Psalms, you see great joy and you see great hope. And sometimes when you read the Psalms, you read fear and hurt and despair. Can you imagine if we uh, set this Psalm to music? The first 37 verses would be pretty happy. Pretty majestic. The praise of God, the promise of a king, reigning joy. But what we read today, verses 38 through 52, they would be in a minor key. The psalmist has rejoiced in promises made, but here in this last part of the psalm, he fears that the promises God had made are not being kept. And those emotions, those dark, painful feelings, they are things that we Christians should not hide from. Many people experience great sorrow, deep disappointment, especially in holiday seasons. Many people feel let down by life. Sometimes they feel let down by God. And while we know from the word of God that God is always faithful, Our experiences do sometimes leave us feeling empty, hurting, vulnerable. So, as we study this section of the psalm, as we hear that minor key and the pain of real life that's lived in an often disappointing world, let's remember this, friends. God knows our pain. God knows our sorrow. And God shows us right here in this psalm how to cry out to him and how to hope in him for the future. So let's get started. Point number one. Sometimes we feel like God's promises have failed. It's a long point, but it's the point. Sometimes we feel like God's promises have failed. Just be real with me right now. You ever feel let down? Verses 38 and 39. But now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed, the anointed, against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. The psalm started with such great declarations. God is mighty, God is faithful, God is full of steadfast love, and God has made some wonderful promises, promises of wonderful things to Israel, the nation, the psalmist that comes from, 
God's promised a king to come. He's going to reign on the throne of David forever. This is going to be great. This is going to be glorious. This is going to be the world set right. But the psalmist now says that God has wrathfully cast off and rejected his anointed. It feels to the psalmist like God has taken his promise and just, just, just thrown it away. The king to reign on David's throne. He's not here. And it looks like things are a big, ugly mess. Verse 39, the language even gets harder. The psalmist declares, God has renounced his covenant and thrown the king's crown in the dust. Supposed to be a king. That's the promise, supposed to be a king. And it looks like the crown has fallen and it looks like the kingdom's broken. You know, we can't say exactly what date this psalm was written, but I would guess from language like this that the text came out either during or just after the Babylonian captivity. Think about that history, all of y'all who were in Sunday school. Israel was God's chosen nation. God gave them their land. Not sure there had been some bumps along the way, but things are pretty good. God set up David and David's family. They are the dynastic ruling family. And everything looks like it's going the right way. But by the time David's grandson, Rehoboam, was on the throne, things went sideways. The kingdom split. Ten of the twelve tribes left the worship of God and they separated from the house of David. And now there were two kingdoms where there should have been one. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And only the southern kingdom, Judah, was ruled by a Davidic king, one that fits the promise. Two centuries later, and the northern kingdom was captured by the Assyrian Empire. The people were chained up and it was brutal how they were driven out of their land. And after many ups and downs, the southern kingdom fell too. In 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar sent his Babylonian soldiers into Jerusalem. The Babylonians captured the children of the nobles and made Judah, David's kingdom, subjects of the Babylonian empire. Then 20 years later, 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers came in, they dismantled the temple, they carried the sacred things out of the temple and to Babylon. They took almost all the people away to a foreign land and it looked right there like everything was lost. Sometimes it really does feel in our lives like God's promises have failed. Look at how the psalmist describes the fall of that kingdom starting at verse 40. Psalm 89 verse 40 You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword. You haven't made him stand in battle. Verse 40. God breached the walls of the anointed. Doesn't that sound like the Babylonians tearing down the walls of Jerusalem? Maybe this psalmist actually saw God let enemy armies tear down what they had always believed God would never let anybody touch. And the psalmist points out that, that, that enemies have, have plundered the land. The Babylonians took everything they wanted from Jerusalem. The neighboring nations, 
The Edomites, they laughed. They celebrated Judah's fall. Imagine the horror of having your worst enemies look at your humiliation and mock you. Imagine them making up little songs to make fun of your pain. That's what the people of Judah experienced. The people who were supposed to be the people under God's promise. Then verses 42 and 43, again, the psalmist is clear. God took a hand in that battle. God wasn't absent from that battle. No, sir. God strengthened the enemies who conquered the land. God God didn't just not help the Judeans as as they fought. Verse 43 says God actually turned the weapons in their hands. God made the Judeans ineffective in the fight. God wanted, God willed for them to be conquered. Then 44 and 45 says, You made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. Selah. The king is no longer glorious. He is cast down. His youth is wasted. The good years of his life are gone. Where there should be glory, the king experiences shame. And the word Selah says, Hey, stop and think. It's a signal for a breaking of the flow of thought. It might be an instrumental interlude. And we need to stop and we need to think. Friends, do you hear the pain in this song? Do you hear it? Do you hear the hurt? Do you hear the disappointment? Sometimes if you live in the real world, it will feel to you like God has gone back on his word. God says he'll never leave us or forsake us. But sometimes we feel alone. True? We expect God to give us long, healthy lives. We expect God to protect us from harm. We expect God to fix marriages if we just pray hard enough. Now we need to be careful. God never promised us easy lives, did he? Jesus said that those who follow him would be persecuted. The pains, the sorrows that come with living in a sin-cursed world, they're going to be present until the Lord Jesus comes back. And we don't have the infinite knowledge and the infinite wisdom of God at our personal disposal to understand exactly why God lets us go through what we go through in our lives. And even as you and I know enough to know that we shouldn't let our circumstances make us doubt the Lord, we also know enough to know that we are not always strong. Sometimes things come through our lives that really, really hurt. Sometimes disappointments will hit us that are hard to survive. Southern Kingdom fell. They entered a period where there was not a Davidic king on the throne. And it felt like, and it looked like God had just not kept his promises. But I'll let you in on a little secret. Whether in the lives of the people of Judah or in your life or mine, God has never once lied. God has never gone back on his word. God has never left his children. But what do we do when life hurts? 
What do we do when hardships come? What do we do when it's Christmas and people around you are happy and you're dying inside? Let's keep going and see what we can learn. Point number two. Point number two. Cry out to God for mercy. Cry out to God for mercy. 46 and following read, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you created all the children of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. How long? You ever ask that question? That's a repeated cry in the Bible. It's in psalm after psalm. We hear it from the lips of the prophets. We even see it in Revelation chapter 6 as the souls of martyrs cry to the Lord for justice. It's a question and a cry of desperation. How long, O Lord? It's more than, than a question. It's a call for help. It's a call for God not to let something that feels wrong last forever. So in simple terms, this section opens with a desperate prayer. The psalmist sees that the world has gone wrong. At least it's wrong to his understanding. And so he prays. His question includes a request. Oh God, don't let this last much longer. It's more than I can bear. It's more than we can bear. How long must this horror stand? Please, God, make it change. What's he concerned about? Feels like God's hiding himself. At the same time, it feels to the psalmist like the wrath of God. God's burning righteous anger for sin is blazing against the people of Judah. Obviously, the psalmist knows. He knows God's not absent. He knows. He knows that the favor of God, though, the smile of God, it's not shining down on the people of Judah. And that how long question, again, that's not just a request for data. How much time is it going to be? It's a call. Please, God, change this situation. And then verse 47, why is he asking God to act quickly? Well, the summary is this. God, remember, our lives are short. The psalmist like, I don't want to die before I see the favor of God and the faithfulness of God return to the people of God. And so the songwriter here points, he says that our lives, there's, there's vanity. The word vanity, it's a word for emptiness. My Old Testament professor used to say it would be the word for soap bubbles. And in this context, the point is not to say that your life is empty is meaningless, but, it, but it's to say that your life is fragile, easily gone, like a soap bubble when you touch it, right? So the psalmist, looking at his few years, his empty years, his fleeting years, is pleading with God, God, please do something before my years fly away and before they're spent. Please, God, turn back to your people before I die. Please turn back before, I, before I'm gone and can't experience it. And then verse 48 asks us a very interesting little question. What man can live and never see death? What man can deliver himself from the power of the grave? Who beats death? All right. The point behind the, the questions, the death questions from the psalmist here, 
He's showing us the deep distress that he's feeling, but he's asking for God's help. He knows God is eternal, but he knows he personally can't hold on and lead the people toward God. The psalmist knows he's going to die one day. And before he takes his last breath, he wants to see God act to show his people that he keeps his promises of faithfulness to the throne. So what do we see so far, friends? What do we see? When it feels like everything's lost, when it feels like God hasn't been faithful, that is the time to cry out to God for mercy. It is right to call on the Lord. Then 49 through 51 says, Lord, where's your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. But this is a passionate prayer. And it continues, and he asks a, a question, Where, where's that steadfast love, God? Throughout this psalm, he has continued to magnify the, the, the hesed of God, the, the, the love of God, the steadfast love of God, often associated with his, his faithfulness, his promise-keeping, his covenant-keeping care over the people. Chesed is the love of God that shows that God is faithful and true even when everybody around God is not. Well, where is that, he wants to know. As we get to the spot where we want God to act, the psalmist is calling on God based on God's character, based on God's promises, based on God's reputation. The songwriter's not calling himself good. Oh God, I deserve your favor. He's not pretending that Israel as a nation hasn't sinned against God. He knows they deserve it. He's just calling on God. God, please be true to what you have revealed yourself to be. And the psalmist points to the promise that God swore to David. We saw that last week, right? Now let me ask you, did the psalmist understand that God would judge David's family of kings if they turned against God? Did they know that? Of course they knew that. In fact, in, in 29 through 37, last week, we saw God say, I will bring judgment on the descendants of David if they rebel. And they had but God also said, I'm never going back on my faithfulness. God is going to keep his promise. God is going to bring a descendant of David. A descendant of David's will reign over the world forever. And what the psalmist is struggling with here is that feeling, that feeling that the promise is there, but it feels utterly impossible. It feels hopeless. He feels like there's no possible way he could imagine that things are going to get right. And so he cries out to God and he beseeches God, God, please be faithful to your character and to your promises. In verses 50 and 51, the psalmist asks God, please remember the way that your servants are mocked. You know, whenever times get hard, whenever the world around us goes godless, whenever the wrath and judgment of God is falling on a land, the people in the land who hate God mock the servants of God. Then verse 51 points out to us that the enemies of God mock even the anointed of God. They're going to mock 
the chosen king until the king brings their mockery to an end. Now, before we read the last verse of this psalm, let's be sure that we know the pattern of the psalm. Because it's a pattern of prayer that we see regularly in the scriptures and we've got to learn from it. It's helpful for people like us to know this, especially when we need to cry out to God in our hard times. This psalm opened with 37 verses of the psalmist declaring truth about God and God's promises. The first 37 verses are full of the praise of God. They're full of references to God's holy word. The psalmist begins his prayer with proper praise and proper reminders of the truth of the Lord. Then in 38 to 45, the psalmist expresses his genuine concern. He spells out in his prayer his pain, his hurt, his fear. It comes close, but he never accuses God of doing wrong. But the psalmist is clear he doesn't understand how things can be right. Then in 49 to 51, the psalmist asks God to remember. He's asking God to take action and not leave things in this ugly state. And all this is familiar because we know that from time to time it feels like things haven't gone according to the promise of God. They surely haven't gone the way we expected them to go. Has your life gone the way you thought it was going to go? We face genuine hardships. We face genuine pains. What do we do? We need to cry out to God in those times. And we need to use the pattern of prayer that we see here in the Word. What do you do first? You praise God for who He is. You praise God for who He's revealed Himself to be in Scripture. Even when you don't feel those truths, you've expressed to God, you know these things are true. Even when you don't feel them, God, you have said you're holy. You have said you're righteous. You have said you're faithful. You've promised that you won't leave us. And then you express to God your genuine need. Don't accuse God of doing wrong because the holiness of God will never do wrong. Can you imagine, by the way, thinking you're holy enough to tell God what's right and what's wrong? If you do that, cut that out. That's not good. But you surely can say to God, God, I don't understand. I don't get it. I hurt. And God, I'm desperate for your help. And when you cry out to the Lord, if you're part of the forgiven family of God in Jesus Christ, you can know that God's going to hear you. Friends, the God of the universe will hear you. Now, we have no guarantee that in this life, God's going to make things easy for us. But we can know that the Lord will work all things together for His glory and our ultimate good. And we can believe that God will work through His Holy Spirit to sanctify us and change us day by day more and more into the image of His Holy Son. 
Yes, sometimes things are hard. And in those times, we cry out to God. That's what the psalmist did. And if you read through the Old Testament, by the way, you've got to get the feeling that that cry, how long, oh God, when are you going to finish? When are you going to get it right, God? When are you going to do what you said? That cry has been there in the hearts of those who are faithful to God all through the Old Testament. Again, think of the promises of God. God said in the garden, I'm sending somebody into the world who's going to crush the devil. God promised Abraham that somebody from Abraham's family line is going to bring the blessing of God to all the nations of the earth. God promised David that a king from David's family line is going to reign forever. But imagine as you're, if you were an Old Testament saint, a thousand years after David, does it not look like the promise had failed. No king sits on the throne of Judah. No promised one has arrived to set things right in the world. And the godless, pagan, idol-worshipping, immoral Roman Empire rules. Third point. Praise Jesus, our faithful deliverer. Look at the last verse of this psalm. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. After desperation, there is praise. The reformers used to say, post Tenebrous lux. Out of darkness, light. After a cry for deliverance, there is an indication that God is faithful. God is blessed. God is worthy of worship forever and ever. Here's the question, friends. Is that true? Is God faithful? Does God keep his promises? Did God keep that promise? Oh, dear me, yes, he did. Though, if you study the word of God, you find out that the Lord did not keep that promise in the way that people expected him to. You see, the people of Judah had more problems than they knew. What did they want? We want a king. We want political deliverance. We want to be freed from oppression, Persian or Roman, I don't care. We want to be freed from mockery. God had a bigger plan Yes, indeed, God would send a king, but first, the one who is king would be the one who is deliverer. The one who is king would be the one through whom people from every nation on earth would find the blessing of God. The one who is king would rescue God's chosen people from their sins before he would reign on the throne of David and over the universe forever. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 reads this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David? Hey, look. 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Who is Joseph? What's the only identifying mark we get? Son of David. There is a hint that we're still dealing with God's promise of a king to come from David's line. A child is going to be born of a woman, of a virgin, fitting the prophecy of Isaiah, fitting a promise in the garden that the offspring of the woman would come into the world to crush the devil. But before we get king, before we get a throne, the child is going to be called Jesus. Why? Because he's a king? No! That's not why his name's Jesus. His name is Jesus because he will first save his people from their sins. Jesus solves a far bigger problem than the political hardships of the Jews. Jesus brings to all nations on earth the salvation of God. How'd he do that? It was a weird way. It was a way that matched the minor key of desperation that we see at the end of Psalm 89. Jesus came to earth, and he didn't take a throne. Instead, Jesus came to earth, lived perfection, and then walked to his death on a Roman cross. Jesus died to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, long before he would reign as king. The psalmist cries, how long, O Lord? Don't you think that when Jesus had finished the work, when Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for sins, when Jesus' body lay in a borrowed tomb, don't you think that cry would have fit that day too? How long, O Lord? After all, Psalm 89, 48 did ask us who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol. Who in the world could deliver his own soul, his own body from the power of death? And then something glorious happened. The psalm we read here ends with, Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen. And boy, does that fit too. How does that fit? Because the one who laid down his life to rescue you and rescue me from our sins didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave and he walked out of the tomb and he ascended alive to the throne over all the universe and he is enthroned and he reigns now and he promises you and he promises me that he is going to return and he's going to reign over the world, over the universe, over all things forever and ever. Amen. God has been faithful to his promises. God has been faithful to his word. God has sent the king of kings to earth and the king of kings that God sent will come again and he will finish everything he ever promised to do. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of God's promises. And let me ask you this. Do you want to be under the grace of God? There's only one way to get there. 
And it's to get there under the perfect and finished work of Jesus. If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, you have to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Bow to Jesus as your king. Receive him as your deliverer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if you do know Jesus, understand, just as we saw in this psalm, yes, sometimes you're still going to hurt. Cry out to God in Jesus Christ. Trust in God's perfect faithfulness. Always remember that God sent his son and proved forever that he always keeps all of his promises. The wise men brought the child Jesus perfect gifts. Gold fits Jesus as a king. Frankincense fits Jesus as God. Myrrh reminds us that God bought our salvation through one who died to rescue us. That was not the plan many people expected God to carry out. It led many people to cry out, How long, O Lord? But that was the only way for all that God intended to accomplish to take place. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus, that's how God did everything he promised he would do. Can you not see the cross in this psalm? Can you not see a bleeding Savior in the world saying, how can this fit God's plan? But when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, our richest gain, the best we have in this world, means nothing. Because we see that that is the way that God saves his people from their sin. And the king who conquers death will be king of kings forever and ever. Here this Christmas, as we remember the birth of the Savior, remember that the one, that baby in a manger, that sweet, sweet little baby, he came to die. He came to bring light out of the darkness. He came to bring salvation to people in despair. Let's pray together. Father, you know how desperately we need you. You know how deep is our sorrow and our shame in times of pain. You know how deep is our hurt from time to time. You know that when we hear this psalm cry out, how long, O Lord, we have felt it. But God, you are God and you are faithful. And while your ways are not our ways and your timing is not our timing, your ways are perfect. Help us let this reminder Lead us to deeper, real emotion and genuine praise of Jesus this Christmas. If anyone here doesn't know you, draw them to you, I pray. Help us turn from sin and trust in Christ. And for all of us who do know you, let us worship you in spirit and truth. Help us remember the cross and remember that it's not just a sweet baby in a manger with animals. It's the Savior of the world, the King of kings, our deliverer. God with us. 
We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.